This morning's reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Ah, it's good to see you. Um, as we continue to plow through the book of Revelation, uh, we come upon the church at Pergamum and... Um, a church, no doubt, that I think we may find the ability to relate to temptation in a particular regard. We find the connection easy to make and one easy to relate to. Uh, just a quick word for you. If any of you are internet savvy and uh, just like in, on Sunday mornings, you can go to my little blog place, mitchjolly.wordpress.com. And pull up my notes with footnotes on them. And if you want to print them out, you get footnotes uh, with scholarly resources. So that if you want to go and be a real nerd, you can use those footnotes. And that would be really good for your nerd factor. And if you care not about that, feel free to just come and you can get a handout. Or some of you guys are using your smartphone. And you're going there right now and looking at it in a digital fashion. That's even cooler. So you're more of a nerd than those who go print out the hard copy. So uh, if you need one, these guys are passing some out right now, some hard copy notes. And so feel free to grab one um, and look along. Uh, if you're looking on the paper version, you're like Fred Flintstone. You're way behind the curve technologically. Uh, but that's kind of where I am, so that's okay. Welcome to my boat. As you can tell, I'm using the Fred version right here, so... It's okay if you've got the paper copy. As we come to this church, the church at Pergamum, it's absolutely important that, uh, that I set this title out beside them first, the Morally Compromising Church. The Morally Compromising Church. Um, give you a little background on this church. Pergamum uh, was the center, the epicenter of religious life in this province. Um, as a consequence, I just feel compelled right now to make sure I make this statement. This, it is so vital, so radically vital, that we see Jesus. We have no greater need than to see Jesus as He is. This church is the, in the location of the absolute religious life, the religious epicenter of this province. And their great need was to lift their eyes. Remember, we set this out from the very beginning. We began studying through Revelation. The greatest need, the dominant theme in the book is the exalted, risen, reigning Christ. And they had no greater, none of these churches have no greater need than to see Jesus as the King, the one who rules all creation. We have no greater need than to see Jesus. Our eyes, our, our spiritual capacity to perceive needs to see Jesus. That is our greatest need. It informs everything else. This church, the church at Pergamum, was at the epicenter of religious life in the province. The city, particularly, is dominated by a huge cone-shaped hill that rose a thousand feet from the ground around it. A thousand feet above sea level. 
And as a consequence, particularly in this part of the world, it, it was the location of multiple temples. Uh, interestingly enough, the very name Pergamum means citadel. Um, I would argue not so much citadel from attack. The city had been conquered before, but I would say it is a fort. It is a citadel of a multiplicity of religious and spiritual influences. Pergamum uh, came to the province in the 3rd century B.C. as the capital of uh, the Atalids under uh, Eumenes II, 197 to 159 B.C., if you're a history nerd. Give you a little framework there. It became the, the absolute finest of the Hellenizing culture. Now, for you who are not familiar with intertestamental stuff between the Old Testament and New Testament, Hellenization is a big deal. As a matter of fact, the Hellenizing process set up the world of the New Testament that brings so much data to the table to make sense of what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. And if you don't know what Hellenization is, it's not a lady named Helen trying to make the world function the way she wants it to. It is a way, and this is my term, Greekification. It's the Greekifying of the world religiously, culturally, and language and everything. And Pergamum became the finest of Hellenizing culture. Interestingly enough, God knew how to use that so that the Greek language would be the language which the New Testament was written would be the common language of all people in that part of the world, and so therefore it would spread. There's missiological implications to that, but just so you know. This Hellenizing, Greekifying of this part of the world, this was the epicenter right here, the city of Pergamum. Its library boasted more than 200,000 volumes. Now, when we think this time of the world, we have a tendency to think, ugh, ugh, ugh. They stone age, moronic men who wear loincloths and hit people with clubs. No. No. That, that, interestingly enough, is a worldview propagated by atheism. There is no Neolithic, Paleolithic man. There was Adam, created the image of God. He was intelligent. He spoke a language. And so, just so you know, just play worldview with me. Just understand, there's a worldview in play. They had 200,000 volumes in the library. These aren't ignorant, uneducated people, okay? 200,000 volumes in the library, so they're educated people who understand their culture and know multiple languages. Legend has it, interestingly enough, that parchment was invented here in the city of Pergamum when the supply of papyrus from Egypt was cut off in reprisal for Eumenes' attempt to lure a famous librarian from the city of Alexandria away from the library in Alexandria. So Egypt cut them off in their papyrus supply. And as a result, they had to have something to write on. And legend has it they invented parchment here. Interestingly enough, the word parchment is derived from the word pergamena. Just so you know. So we're not talking about a bunch of backwoods, Silver Creek people, okay? Very intelligent people. The most famous uh, here in this city was the temple of Aselpius, the god of healing, closely associated with a snake, interestingly enough, which gave Pergamum a reputation of being a healing center. There was a huge altar to Zeus, built to commemorate the gods of Greece and their victorious combat against the giants of the earth, particularly symbolic of the Greeks' conquest, finally, of the barbarians. And interestingly enough, there's a famous frieze of this uh, from the altar of Zeus commemorating this victory in the Museum of Berlin today. You can go see that if you want to fly to Berlin and take a look at it. Most important of all, Pergamum had the first temple in the area dedicated to Augustus and Rome. And as a result, it became the center of worship of the emperor in the province. You get to feel the religious culture here? You feel that? There, there, is, there is an highly educated, there is, a, there is a highly spiritual and religious tone to this city. This political, this religious, this educated culture created some peculiar problems for Christians. Interestingly, the titles Lord and Savior and God were constantly applied to the emperor, which obviously Christians would not do. 
You know, we often mention Jesus as Lord and Savior. He is kurios, he soterios, Lord and Savior. That terminology comes from the Christians not being willing to say Caesar is Lord and Savior. Rather, they would say Jesus is Lord and Savior, and it got them killed. So when you, when you utter the phrase, Jesus is Lord and Savior, you remember the blood behind that phrase. Don't forget that. The Lord acknowledges Pergamum as being the place where Satan has his throne. This probably relates particularly to the throne-like altar of Zeus here. But it's also a very clear image of the idolatry that held sway in Pergamum. And we know from the biblical text in Corinthians and in Deuteronomy, the scriptures maintain clearly that those who worship other gods, in fact, worship demons. And so it doesn't take us a very large leap to understand that what is happening in the city of Pergamum is a place where the demonic rules the day. This statement that the place where Satan's throne is, is a statement of the spiritual reality that the people had constantly coming at them from the evil one. But these Christians at Pergamum, many of them remain true to the name of Jesus, the only Lord. Clearly, a persecution has taken place because one of their number, Antipas, who is called my faithful witness, was killed for the sake of the name of Christ. This could be um, the first occasion where the word martyr is actually being consciously used for one who laid down their life for the sake of Christ. This obviously isn't the first martyr. That would be Stephen. But this is the first place where the word is consciously, intentionally used and applied to Antipas, one who gave up his life for the sake of the gospel. The church church at Pergamum, the morally compromising church. So that's the question. What do we, in looking at this text and driving our eyes down at the text, what do we come away with that we take as Three Rivers Community Church and apply so that we clearly keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? Remember, their greatest need is to see the King. And I would argue the greatest temptation for all of us is to take our eyes off of the king. And what do we, we come away with from this text to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus? A few things I want to share with you here. Four in particular. I've got a few subpoints for, for some of them. Number one. We have to remember, in striving to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, what the writer of Hebrews say, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we firmly fix our gaze on the high and lifted up King who's ruling all of creation, so that our decision making is informed by our vision of Him. We must understand, number one, satanic evil is real. But it's not a sufficient excuse to ignore compromise. Satanic evil is real. I want you to join me for a moment in trying to understand and grab a, a thoroughly Christian worldview. I want you just notice where the text begins. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Obviously Jesus. We remember back to the end of chapter 1, this image of the Son of God, resurrected ruling king. Awesome, holy, incredible. 37 times the word throne appears and most of them applying to his resurrected rule. He's got the sharp two-edged sword. To the angel of this church, the angel assigned to this church, Hear the words of the one who's got the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What is the implicit understanding? There is more than what you see in play. I think for most of us, we, we, we dwell 
in a worldview and in an air that still reeks of, of modernity, which dominant position was atheism, that there is nothing beyond the material. And decision-making is based upon only what we see and what we perceive with our eyes. And, and so, therefore, we have a state called the show-me state because I've got to see it to make sense of it because there's nothing else beyond my, my sight. The worldview of the text is this presuppositional reality that there is more to life than what we see, even greater still, What we see has been informed by what we don't see. So that the idea that we live life mainly off of our perception becomes radically false biblically. We must have as Christians, as part of our discipleship process, a worldview, a set of glasses that we're capable of of looking through, through the help of the Holy Spirit, so that we understand there is so much more in play. Jesus says, you are dwelling where the enemy's throne is at. You you are on the front lines. There's more in play than the thousand foot hill. Don't be deceived, my precious church. It's the throne of the evil one. Satanic evil is real. And and I want you to hear the words of Jesus. This is real. He didn't say Rome, Georgia is where the throne of Satan is. I don't know. What I do know is that this place was a demonically and spiritually charged environment. And it had massive implications on what was going on in them and infecting and affecting them. Wherever there is much false religion and even education, you have a spiritual hotbed. Why? Well, what did Jesus say about Satan? He is a liar. And the father of lies. Let me step out from behind the text and give you my opinion for a moment. The two greatest areas in which the enemy can propagate lies, where else would they be? Religion and education. Religion, obviously, no, duh. If the evil one started in the garden... By drawing Adam and Eve's attention away from the worship of the Lord. By seeing they could be like Him. And have all the knowledge that He had. And rule as He ruled. Why do you think His tactic would stop today? He seeks to deceive with beautiful and smooth sounding God talk. The name God isn't such a big deal. We hear it all the time. The question is, what God? Don't assume if somebody says God, they mean Jesus. Secondly, education. This is a highly educated place. Huge library. A, A place of religious study. A place of academic study. A place where legend has it because of their need to write and educate. They created a writing material that changed the face of the world because Egypt cut off their supply of writing material. Listen, all good education has to begin with this foundation. Who is God and what has He said? If education does not start with the starter of all things, its base is flawed. Because its presupposition is that this discipline is all there is. Math must begin with there is a God who informs its meaning. Otherwise, math becomes an end in itself, and that's called idolatry. Some of you are following me. I saw it with your lips. You get it. Anything that ends in itself becomes an idol. And what other way can people be led astray through an education that comes to the end of the day and says, well, obviously there's no God. Duh, you stupid Christians. 
you stupid whoever. It's clear there's no God. Really? Or could you be blind? Because if this is accurate, the fool says in his heart there is no God. You can be a fool and have a Ph.D., Here's my point. They lived in a hotbed of spiritual activity. Take a look around our town. We've got three schools. College level institutions. We have, we have massive educational opportunities here. We are a hotbed of spiritual activity. We've got... We got 140, and some people say there's more, but that, that are functioning, at least appear to be functioning, institutions who claim the name of Jesus and fail implicitly to preach the gospel clearly. So I ask you this question, could we make the conclusion that we ourselves could be a hotbed of spiritual activity? I would say probably so. Could be. Some of you know this clearly. You wrestle through some of this. But here's what I want us to understand. There is always in play more than meets the eye. We wrestle not, Paul said, against flesh and blood. You ever wonder what it is when we try to make the gospel clear and it just seems to bounce off and fall to the floor? That's, that's the lies of the evil one at work in the hearts of unbelievers. You ever wonder why the United Way can raise a million dollars by only picking up the phone and Christian ministries are trying to advance the gospel globally, have to lay people off? You think that's just strategy? No, not at all. It's called we are plowing into ground that is hard. And it's made hard by the lies of the evil one. And he wants to fight against us. There is more in play here, folks. Are you, are you tracking with that? You ever just stop and wonder, why is it harder on Christian ministries? You look at some of the stuff that goes forward that is so good in the advancement of the gospel. And all of them seem to struggle. It's not easy. But you take some crazy, whacked out institution, Planned Parenthood, and they get government funding. You pay for it. I wonder why that is. It could be that we're fighting a battle that goes deeper than, than what we see. This church here was wrestling against spiritual difficulty. But it's not enough to be held as a good excuse. Why? Because they know. Jesus says, you are where Satan's throne is at. You know, you understand. Here's what we have to understand. We've been given all the tools necessary to plow hard ground through the work of the gospel. Here's the good news. We don't have to plow ground. The gospel will plow ground. The gospel will break walls down that we couldn't break down hitting them for a thousand years. We don't have to have cleverly devised schemes. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 10, but our weapon for fighting and knocking down the strongholds that hold people away from the gospel is spiritual in nature, and it is the gospel. It is a sledgehammer that will crush. Peter says, you fall on it, it crushes you. It falls on you, it crushes you. The gospel is power. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We need no other power. So there's no excuse for us saying, wow, we're in a spiritual hotbed. Oh, woe is me. No, we have the gospel that triumphs. Satanic evil is real. But our weapon is even more real still. Some of you guys are engaged in ministry. It's hard. It's difficult, isn't it? Why is it so easy to feed homeless people? But why is it like pulling teeth to get a family to say, I'll, I'll take one? When that is explicitly written. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. 
shared an email with a person this week regarding Project 127. And I haven't got a response because I think I really made them mad. And I was so excited about that. So I don't know if I'm in sin or not, but I was really excited about that. Because they asked the question, they didn't plow into, we need these people to come do this. And I finally asked the question, could it be you? Could it be because you're trying to plow ground with your implements and not the gospel's implication on your life? You don't have skin in the game. It's hard. No doubt. But guys, we have the power of God for salvation, the gospel. It is our convincing tool. Jesus is the hammer that will crush. He is the hand that will save. He will break down walls. He will transform lives. We don't have an excuse. Yes, we're in a spiritual hotbed, but oh, the gospel is even hotter still. So I say to us by way of encouragement, let's plow on. Let's plow on. If you're involved, if you have skin in the game, don't be discouraged. There is a war and it is raging. And no, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But the gospel can triumph and will triumph. And my encouragement to you is fight, 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 fight. Satanic evil is real. But it's not a sufficient excuse to ignore compromise. We don't give up. We don't stop. We plow ahead. Amen? Number two, we have to watch out for compromise and syncretism. Weird word. Notice verse 14 and 15, but I have a few things against you. Wouldn't you hate to hear those words from Jesus? I kind of like to fall in Smyrna and Philadelphia's camp. I like those are really good camps. He didn't say that to them. I have a few things against you means he loves them. He disciplines those he loves. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Uh, these first four words of verse 15 are important in connecting this statement to verse 14. So also you have some. So also, in other words, connecting the teaching of this group of people, which we've looked at already, to this teaching in verse 14. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In other words, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Nicolaitan meaning to master the people, these people are in the camp of those in the camp of Balaam. In other words, this, these two groups of people are on the same mission and have the same end in mind. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What in the world did he just say? Balaam, who's that? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a story in the book of Numbers. And understanding the story of Balaam helps us to at least get our hands around interpreting what does he mean by saying you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What is that? Balaam was a true prophet who prostituted his gifts in order to earn money from King Balak, who hired him, that is Balaam, to curse the people of Israel. He saw them coming and he said, dude, can't have this. They're going to take us over. Would you curse them for me? So he tried to pay him to curse Israel. But if you're familiar with the story, God prevented Balaam from actually cursing the nation. As a matter of fact, the more he tried, the harder it was to curse him. In fact, God turned his curses into blessings. But Balak still got his money's worth. How did that happen? By this. Balaam gave him some advice. And that advice was, make friends with Israel. Invite them to worship with you. And give your daughters to their sons in marriage. And we think, well, that sounds like good politically correct politics, man. Invite them to your building. And y'all worship together. Have a combined worship service. Same God, after all. So you just worship together, right? And then, this would be, make an alliance. Have them marry your daughters. And the Jewish men fell right into the trap. 
And many of them became really good neighbors. They went and they worshipped with those people. They began to take part in their religious rites. And in Numbers 25, 1 to 9, 24,000 people died because of this disobedient act of compromise. We look at our culture, and there's this rampant idea that we and the world's religions are one. We have the same God, and, and, and we can come and worship together, and we can have our joint worship gatherings, and we should just join up hands and work together for the stamping out of certain issues because after all we're really on the same team and and really all these issues affect all of us so let's join hands and walk forward into doing the work and if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear that sounds good one problem our god is not their god The consequence for the people was that there was a summary execution of 24,000 people because of this compromise. Why? Because God will not allow himself to be equated with demons. We are not the same. God will not have his name prostituted among pagan, demonic, religious Entities. And what we find here in this story, those who held to the teaching of Balaam is this one word. You ready? Permissiveness. Permissiveness. They permitted a barrier that was good to fall down in order to let in things that were destructive for them. Permissiveness. Their compromise was they permitted things that should have been forbidden that created a devastating consequence. This brings up two big issues. Number one, what the New Testament in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is going to call lawlessness. And a term given to those in the New Testament who held that their salvation was gained through keeping of law. Lawlessness and legalism. Both of those two teachings are permissive in this way. Lawlessness permits anything to the destruction of the fame of Jesus Christ. Legalism permits your way for salvation to the exclusion of Jesus. And both of them are devastating. You see, in our camp, on our team, we'll probably never have an issue with legalism at all. At all. Praise God. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. My tendency would be to permit too much and think it would be okay. You see, the reality is when you put God's people in the game, there is a temptation to sometimes let things go that we should never let go. Because sometimes by catching things, it creates conflict and difficulty. And I promise you, those things aren't always pleasant. So it's easier to permit it rather than to put up a gate and say, no. Some who were holding to the teaching of Balaam were those who were allowing religious realities and spiritual realities apart from truth to enter their worship, their practices, and their life. And they were compromising on the gospel for the sake of things that were devastating. And I want to say this to us. Let us be warned that we should not, must not ever allow spiritual and competing spiritual realities to enter our personal thinking patterns, our worship patterns, so that we hold forth the gospel clearly without ever, ever having a competing reality with the gospel. Say that you just said stuff, but it went here. I don't have a clue what you just said. 
me say it another way. When we forge into the dark realities of our town and the globe, let us never be tempted to allow anything to compete with the name of Jesus. Not social justice. Not another God. Not even good ministry that is separated from the gospel. We don't feed stomachs without feeding hearts. We don't meet needs without meeting the ultimate need. We don't let realities in that are separate from the gospel. If you get anything from us, it must be the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that can compete with that. Our goal is not to be accepted. Our goal is that Jesus be exalted even if we die. We can't have Antipas, my faithful witness, and have Jolly, who stayed alive but tore down the cross to do so. We must hold forth the gospel at all costs. There can be nothing that competes with the gospel. It is a tragedy and a devastation to think somehow that a church could become a trumpet for a political party. We do it every year at the elections. We try to cover it up somehow. I just want you to know, I'm on Jesus' team, and I don't care whether it's a donkey or an elephant, or green. I'm on Jesus' team. They're going into Jericho. Joshua meets this awesome figure. He says, you for us or them? He said, neither. I'm captain of the Lord's army. That's our response. Who are you voting for? Jesus. And if either one of those aren't, I'm not. Why? Because I hold the cross. There will never be a political solution to the advancement of the kingdom. That's why the king's returning and will bring all of them in subjection to him. We can't trumpet a party and say somehow we're being Christian. We must trumpet Jesus. We cannot permit those devastating small things into our thinking that somehow if we do this, we will be liberated. No, we will not. There is no liberation apart from the gospel. Does that make sense at all? We don't permit any competing thing into the gospel. We're never saved by anything other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? We won't hit legalism. We don't have a problem with that. But oh, let us have a very clear standard on what we let into our practice when it comes to anything competing with the gospel. And I don't have time to go any further with that. That really deserves another talk. But Watch out for being condemned by the word, number three, rather than being encouraged by the word. Jesus promises... That unless there is repentance, unless they turn around, he will come soon and war against them with the sword of his mouth. Did you, did you catch that? He said, if you don't repent, I will come and war with you. Does, any, does that blow your view of Jesus out of the water at all? We don't think Jesus, we think of Jesus as a 1960s dope smoking hippie with a peace sign. Right? Isn't that the image that usually gets put on Jesus? He's got blue eyes and a white gown and a sash. And he's holding the peace sign. And we don't think of Jesus as coming with a sword to war. But you remember, that's the image we got at the front end. And that's the promise of who's returning is a conquering king. And he will smash his enemies with a rod of iron. That blows our image of Jesus up sometimes, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, as a dude, I'm there. That, that's my king. And he says, if they don't turn, I will come and war with them. Dude, this scares me as a pastor. I don't want to be on the receiving end of that. 
say, how do you avoid being on the receiving end of that? Here's how we avoid it. We look down and we say, here's what it means. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. It is my job. It is the job of pastors. It is the job of ministry leaders to force our eyes down to the text and say, what does that mean? And now what do we do with that? If we don't and we find ourselves in the teaching of Balaam or any other of a thousand things we can let in that competes with the gospel, Jesus says, I will come. And how did he say it earlier in the book? I will take your lampstand from you. I will war against you. Wow. We must be faithful to the text. Our greatest job is to force our eyes down to the text and make sense of what God has said and obey it. Dude, I'm going to tell you something. That will never sell in the church growth world. It won't sell in how to maintain a mega church. But it will build the kingdom of God. And whether we live in that or die in that, that must be our mission. We have to watch out And don't find ourselves being condemned by the Word rather than encouraged by the Word. I would rather Jesus come and say, stay faithful. I know it's hard, but I will uphold you. I will sustain you. I I will give life to your dead body. But don't quit rather than saying, I'm coming to swat you. And remove your lampstand because you have perverted my Word. Let's make sure we make sense of this. Fourth and finally, look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. This is, Jesus says this a lot in the Gospels. He, he, he throws his teaching down on the group and he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And in English, that sounds like a good suggestion. What we miss is in Greek, that's an imperative. And it doesn't come through really good in English. So it sounds something more like this. If you've got ears, listen. And again, that doesn't match our view of Jesus because he's peace. Not, I'm a ruling king. Listen to my words. Because we don't like to think of Jesus as raising his voice. Because he's weak. No, he's the creator of the universe. He's the ruling king. And when the king says, listen, do people go on talking? You notice in classrooms, I think it's hilarious as a teacher. You know, okay, let's pay attention. What would happen if the president walked in the room? President. When Jesus says, listen, do you think people are still going, you know, I mean, and within earshot? Hey, listen. Do you think people are like, hey, man, what's going on, man? What you doing after? Yeah, let's go there. Let's go hang out. No. Jesus steps in the room. He says, listen to me. And people are like, okay, I'm there. When Jesus says, who has an ear, let him hear, it is a call to look at him. Pay attention. Look at me. What I'm about to say is vital. So when you hear that in the text, he who has an ear, let him hear, pay attention. Because Jesus is about to say something that's astounding. And he's about to blow us up right here in a great, this is beautiful. Look at, listen to what he says. Who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. This is amazing. He's, he's going to absolutely blow on us grace here. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what in the world does that mean? So I'm going to get some manna and a rock. What? So is that all I get out of this gig? She don't even know what manna is and I'm not sure I would like it. And a rock? Really? I mean, that's... <laughs> That's, I don't know that I'm in. You know, that's kind of, I was kind of looking for a little more than some funky bread that's on sand in the morning and a rock. Those who conquer, those who remain faithful are fully nourished and are given full access to the kingdom of God. Listen very quickly. Manna. out of slavery in Egypt. What does God do to supply for them bread to eat? They wake up in the morning and it's all over the ground. 
And they're to take enough for each day. Except on the Sabbath, they take enough for two days. Otherwise, it would rot. And Jesus comes along in John 6, 35. And what did he say? I'm the bread that come down from heaven. I'm that manna that nourishes. I'm that manna that supplies. People who... They in the gospel, who love the gospel, are fully nourished by Jesus. Here's what that means. I will give you this manatee, this hidden manna. Here it is. here's, Here's this beautiful statement. Those who love Christ more than anything will never find a taste for anything that would compete with Jesus. Our salvation is rich and sweet. And we will be given the tasteful eating of and enjoyment of Christ, and there will be nothing that can compete with that kind of bread. It is nourishment that doesn't run out. We will all eat lunch or something at some point and get hungry again, but Jesus says, you eat on me, you taste me, and there will be no hunger in you. Those who love the gospel find there's, there's just no hunger for anything else, because why, where would I go? John 6, Jesus says to those in chapter 2 who believed in His name, and we would think they're saved, but you read the next verse in John 2, it says Jesus didn't trust Himself with them because He knew their motives. We get to John 6, He says, Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and they all leave. And He turns to the 12 and says, You're going to leave too? And you may know what Peter said. Where are we going to go? You've got life. That's what He's talking about. Those who tasted the gospel, like, where am I going to go? There's nothing else. There is no other life. This is life. Those who love the gospel find that there's nothing competing. And my salvation, it's huge. It's it's my love. It's my joy. Yes, we've got to move on. Finally, we're given access to the very things that give pleasure to God and thus give pleasure to us. These two are so intertwined, and and I, I stated it in point A for you there. Salvation is personal. Notice they're given a rock with a new name on it that nobody knows except the person who gets the rock. Salvation is a personal issue. We make a lot about community and community matters, but I want, you know you can't enter the community unless you have been born by the Spirit of God through the gospel. You yourself must know Christ. And it isn't done because you come in and, and you're just part of the community. You enter the community when you enter Jesus. But they're given a rock. What's the rock? Why am I given a rock? In those days, gladiators, or those competing in games who won, were given a rock that was used as a ticket. It was a precious stone. And it was a ticket that was used to gain admission to a feast or any other activity held at which the person who was honored with the rock would get to come and partake in. When he says, I'm going to give you a rock, it's got your name on it, it's your, your salvation. You enter the kingdom of God as an individual. And, and, and because you enter the kingdom of God, I'm going to give you a rock. Not, not like, you know, you're going to have a rock in your back pocket and say in the kingdom, hey God, can I, can I come in because I got my rock? No. Here's the point. Those who love the gospel gain access to everything that is God's. Do you understand the richness of that? Those who love the gospel have access to everything that makes God happy. And I'm totally out of time because I have nine things that make God happy. That you and I have instant access because we've been birthed into the kingdom of God and we have no other competing joy but the gospel. But I want you to hear this. I'll probably hit these as introduction next week because they are huge. This reality that those who overcome, those who love Christ, who stay into the gospel and permit nothing to compete with the gospel, we have access to everything that makes God happy. And the understanding is that we are instantly made happy in the things that make God happy. The Christian's life is one of a pursuit of joy in the things that make God happy. And that's the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Is we would never turn around and go back. Why? Because our happiness is in Him. We've been changed. And my joy, I get my greatest joy when I pursue what makes Him happy. 
by the way, that's really, really good. But that's only for those who love the gospel more than anything. Let me pray. Father, I pray today that you would help us to see and savor Jesus Christ more than anything. Father, I ask that you would cause the person and work of Jesus Christ to be our joy. Father, I ask that you would put a, put a wall in our lives that we are sensitive to by the work of your Spirit that is a barricade to anything that would compete with the gospel. Pray, Father, that you would give us a desire to taste what makes you happy more than any other thing. That our great joy would be you and what makes you happy. Father, for many of us, we are in constant need of having you refine our tastes so that we only want to taste the gospel. And for many of us, we have leftover issues that you're working on in sanctification. And I pray, God, that you would help us to to climb over that in your grace so that our, our tastes for the holy are greater than our tastes for the fruit of wickedness. Oh, give us taste buds for what makes you happy. And may our pursuit of joy in you be greater than any desire. Help us to be faithful to the gospel. Father, for many, they wrestle very clearly and they're aware that they're not wrestling against flesh and blood. I pray today that you would help them to fight well. I pray that you would banish the work of the evil one. I pray that you would plow the evil one with the gospel so that we can walk in your peace. I pray, Father, you would help us to stay faithful in what you've given us to do and not turn back. That you would sustain us in that. So as we come to sing to you and make much of you, I pray that you would inform our singing, inform our thinking, inform our feelings so that you are glorified and we, your people, are encouraged.